God, touch is a very important element in our life. And God, to know when somebody's touching us that they care about us, that they notice us, that they love us, they acknowledge us. God, may your touch be that real in lives in this place today. God, may our great desire be to sense your working in our life. Not necessarily a bunch of blessings that we interpret as blessings, but the work of your spirit in our lives to change us and to make us into what you desire us to be. God, be pleased to send your Holy Spirit into this place today to work. May we honor you. May we worship you because you are worthy. In the good times and in the bad times. We thank you that you sent your son who endured the bad times for us. So that we could pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to see you. This is, uh, as I said earlier, this is my first time at New Life in a month. I'm a regular attender. Catch you up on my travels a little bit. Three weeks ago or four weeks ago, the first week of the month, well, the first week of the month I was here for the 4th of July as we reached into our community. And then uh, the next weekend I went to Pensacola, Florida. It pays to go to high school in Florida because you get to go back there for your reunions. Went to my 30th high school reunion. I know. I don't look that old. A lady came up to me after last celebration. She said, I just went to my 56th high school reunion and I don't know how that could be because I'm only 39. <laughs> anyway, how many of you have been to your high school, uh, high school reunion? Are those not the weirdest things that you've ever been to in your entire life? Some of your classmates look exactly like they did in high school. Just older, grayer, or balder. I'm not sure who said that, but that happens too, I guess. <clears throat> and then others change dramatically. And they walk in and everybody's, who could that possibly be? Now, we had name tags with our high school yearbook picture on them, which helped greatly because you got to go, oh, that's you. <clears throat> One of the most dramatic changes was a gal that she was the editor of the yearbook. She was just your average kind of looking gal, you know. Well, she walks in to this banquet hall and every head turned. And she was wearing this silver sequined piece of cloth. Maybe it was a size one. I don't know. <clears throat> and everybody's thinking, what is she doing? Is she a model? Is she an actress? Now what? She's an archaeologist. <laughs> so we called her Laura Croft for the rest of the weekend. <laughs> so that was the first week. Got to go to Pensacola. Got to go to the beach. It was Blue Angels weekend. So 40 feet above the sands in Pensacola were the Blue Angels. It was awesome to be home again. 
<coughs> and then got back, was home for four days and left for Costa Rica. And we, uh, there were nine of us on our team and we went into Costa Rica and um, God just did great things. We were able to complete the, uh, one of the yellow houses there, the first yellow house in the village we'd been working in. And uh, it was for an older man and his autistic son who's in his late 20s. And um, we started out that week and he was just kind of an old codger, you know, and not really sure about what was happening. I mean, these people were coming in tearing down his house. <clears throat> this was our first time at uh, working with the, the people, the locals, in training them how to build these houses. So we had lots of challenges on our hands and especially those guys who knew what they were doing. They had real challenges on their hands and... Throughout the week, we started seeing this guy kind of soften. And as it turns out, <clears throat> he's kind of uh, a, um, pulled himself away from the community and kind of become kind of a hermit. And um, about day three, he said to one of our leaders, he said, I didn't know that my community loved me. He said, so, and these are his words. He said, several years ago, I just kind of went into this a depression and <clears throat> withdrew and the problems of my son just kind of took over and and uh, he also said that he used to be a painter and he had given that up just because he was so depressed but he said what I've learned this week is that the people in my community do care for me that not only does my community care for me but people came from thousands of miles away to say that they cared for me and that Jesus was building a house. He said, I feel like God's wanting me to go back and start painting again. And so Friday at the dedication, we handed him the key to his house. The key to his life. The word of God. And so Friday, here was this guy who didn't know that his, his village cared for him. And he had 60 people in his house for a pizza party. And uh, what a blessing that, uh, you know, a few bucks on our part changes lives, doesn't just build houses. The rest of the week we spent ministering and God's breaking out a, a revival in this little community. And it's starting with young men between the ages of 15 and 25. Many of whom have been involved in drugs and sexual activity and lots of stuff. Some of these 15-year-old boys have kids of their own. <coughs> and uh, we just saw God break out and uh, amazing things happen. Young men falling to the floor weeping in repentance. Not for five minutes or 15 minutes, but for 45 minutes and an hour as people prayed for them. Holy Spirit just setting in and changing lives. We walked into a house one day to pray for a family. that The father was an alcoholic, was a Christian, but had drawn far away from God. And it was a very small little house, probably, I would say, as big as this platform area, where he lives with his five children and his wife. Very few, very little airflow in this house. That's all I can describe it as. There was a window off to my left and that was about it. And <clears throat> it was a stifling day. We were praying in this house for this family. One of the leaders there on the ground in Costa Rica 
said, what can we pray for you? After we had prayed for him, what, what do you want us to pray for? The man immediately began to repent and prayed to give his life back to Christ and to raise his family in a God-pleasing way. Just in a matter of moments, we felt like every place we would go into, the Holy Spirit was going before us. Drug dealers stopping us on the street to pray for them. Standing in the middle of the street with their clients looking and drug dealers breaking down and crying in the streets. But in this home that day, we prayed for this man. He repented and began a new journey with Jesus. And the missionary said, well, why don't you pray for your family? So he gathered his children, his wife, and he began to pray. And all I can do is tell you what happened. As he began to pray, a wind in the dead stillness of that day, a wind blew into that place, colder than I have ever felt other than the middle of winter, blew into that room and just gusted for about 30 seconds and then stopped. Now, I'm a Baptist, and I don't know how to interpret that. But my first thought was somebody asked me afterwards, what was that? I said, well, I don't know what that was, but my first thought was that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, he came as a wind. And I, feel, I felt like what God was doing was saying, I am coming into this place and honoring your commitment to your family and the Holy Spirit is with you. Well, this stuff went on all week. Needless to say, we came back worn out physically and spiritually emotionally of course i came back and found out that god broke out here this past week and god's continued to break out this past week i've gotten i've had people come to my office all week wanting to repent and confess sin deal with what's stuff in their lives and come back to god that's what's happened in the two celebrations both at six and nine this morning again amazing stuff happening I believe God's up to something. So I began to pray that God would use this message. And so the first thing he did was take away my voice. And I believe that he did take it away because the worst nightmare of a speaker is that you don't have a voice. The lesson for us, though, today is that it's not about the vessel. It's about what God wants to say to us. It's ultimately about the truth of the word and not how it's delivered. So if you can put up with this and listen to God this morning, I think we got an awesome combination, okay? (coughs) Okay, so that's the report of my last month. How was yours? Go on a mission trip. All right, I'll leave it at that. We're going to look these next two weeks at the subject that I'm calling in the dust of the rabbi. And that title will make sense in about 10 minutes, okay? You have in your bulletin some notes you can take there and encourage you to just kind of listen to God, write down what he tells you, not what I say. First, let's take a look at the historic importance of the rabbi-disciple relationship. Now, most of us know enough about Judaism to where we know what a rabbi is, right? Rabbi is kind of the leader of the synagogue and... Okay, we got that. 
Well, historically, rabbis were those men whose basic task it was to teach and interpret the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They were the most respected members of the community, you see, because they were the best of the best. They were the smartest students who knew the text inside and out. You'll see in a moment that not everybody could be a rabbi. It took grueling effort and study to be a rabbi. Well, their favorite way of teaching was to ask questions. Rabbis rarely gave an answer, but they would ask students to search for the answer. See, in rabbinic education, there was little interest in students to to just spit back information just for information's sake. The point of rabbinic education was to point to find whether the student understood the text, that he'd wrestled with it, and that he could take it a step further into life. The goal of every rabbi, and there were many, was to interpret the scriptures as closely as possible to what God originally intended. Now, you you see this first rub here, right? Whenever we interpret scripture and try to find what God originally intended, in all likelihood, we're going to come up with different answers. We're going to come up with different things. And what the, the, the role of the rabbi was, was to create a set of rules and lists of his interpretation of how to live out the Torah. So what we've, we discover in Jewish history, <clears throat> as way of example, there are ten commandments. But by some counts, there were three to 4,000 rules on how to live out the commandments. In other words, there were rules for the rules. And so one rabbi might say, well, in order to really honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, here's a list of things you can do, and here's a list of things you can't do. But if you walked over here to this rabbi, he might give you a different list of those things you can and can't do in order to honor the Sabbath. Make sense? That was their role, was to interpret the Scripture. And that interpretation, this list of rules, this, this list of extra laws and this list of lists was called the rabbi's yoke. It was his specific burden, his specific way of doing things and way of living. And so when you followed a specific rabbi, you were taking up that rabbi's yoke. Let's talk for a minute about those who followed these rabbis. The English translation of the word that we've, I'll tell you here in a few minutes is really disciples. So these rabbis had men that would follow them. The first level of their training came between the ages of 6 and 10. And it was called Bet Sefer, the house of the book. The point of this first level of education was for these 6 to 10 year olds to memorize the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament. 6 to 10 year olds. 
Some of you would be happy if your 6 to 10-year-old would just clean their room, let alone memorize the Torah. By age 10, these students have begun to sort themselves out already. Some would demonstrate natural abilities with the scriptures and they would start to distance themselves from the other boys. Now, sorry, ladies, in this tradition, this was just a guy thing. <coughs> My guess would be, though, that the ladies were learning it when the guys got home. Tell me what you learned at school today. Now, keep in mind that all this memorization is being done by oral communication. There were not written copies that everyone had of the Torah. Many villages were small enough that the only copy they had was the one that was read in the worship services, okay? So this was all done orally, which means your education was all day, every day, repeating passages over and over and over again until you had the first five books memorized. The next level of education was called Bet Talmud, the house of learning. It lasted until sometime around the age of 14. During Bet Talmud, here was your task, to memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, just so you get an idea of what we're talking about, if you have your Bible, take it and stick your finger right where Malachi ends and Matthew begins. You see that that's uh, the majority of Scripture? By age 14, this is what a good rabbinic student would have memorized. 39 books, word for word, in Hebrew. Now that sounds hard, but they spoke Hebrew, so it wasn't really that bad. In addition to this, so you're memorizing, in addition to this, you're trying to listen to the oral tradition being passed on by the rabbis. So you're listening to who said what about what scripture. And you'd wrestle with God's message and what it meant to live it out. So by the age of 14 or 15, at the end of Bet Talmud, only the best of the best were still studying. Those remaining would apply to a well-known rabbi to become one of the rabbi's Talmudin or disciples. Now, these disciples were more than students. You see, the goal of the disciple of a rabbi wasn't just to know what the rabbi knew, but to be just like the rabbi, to live his life the way the rabbi did. When a student applied to a rabbi to be one of his Talmudin, he desired to take on that rabbi's yoke, his list of specific interpretations, the responsibilities, the burdens of the scripture. He wanted to learn to do what the rabbi did. This level is called Bet Madrash, the house of study. These kids would be grilled by, their, by the rabbi to see if he could do what the rabbi did. 
You see, there was no time to waste on someone who wouldn't be able to do what the rabbi could do. If the rabbi felt that the boy didn't, would not do well, he would send him home to do the family business. But if he believed he would do well, the rabbi would say, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And at that point, these young boys, 14 and 15 years old, would leave their homes, would leave everything they'd known, and they'd follow the rabbi everywhere. They would give up their whole life just to be like their rabbi. Some of you have already figured out where we're going with this. One of the earliest sages of this rabbinic movement said to his disciples, cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi's feet. See, the rabbi would come to town and behind him would be his group of students doing their best to keep up with the rabbi wherever he went, not wanting to miss a moment of his teaching. Do you see it? You see, in this picture, I believe we see how Jesus has called us to himself and the seriousness of how closely we are to follow him. And so I ask you this question. Is your life covered in the dust of your rabbi? Is your life covered in the dust of your rabbi? Because Jesus was our rabbi. His disciples called him that because rabbi simply means teacher. And I think we'll discover in these next few moments that Jesus met the requirements of being a rabbi. Have you ever noticed how many times Jesus would ask questions and not give the answers? Wonder where he learned that. You see, Jesus too was not about just the transfer of information, but the living out of truth in a life. In Luke 2, Jesus' parents lose him. I will not ask you to raise your hands to say if that has ever happened to you. It probably has never happened to quite this extent. Listen to Luke 2.46. After three days, they found him where? In the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. You see, Jesus, in all likelihood, was in the process of this rabbinic training and by the time he was in the temple, there is a strong likelihood that he had memorized the entire Old Testament. And so he was there talking with the teachers and the rabbis, listening to them and asking questions, seeking to be a learner. It is said that at the age of 30, men would step into the role of rabbi. And interestingly enough, at age 30, Jesus stepped into that role too. 
Now remember that yoke thing? That the rabbis set of rules and lists on how to really live out the, the scriptures were the rabbis yoke. Jesus addressed it too, didn't he? In Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, he says, Come, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, this rabbi had a yoke too. But rather than a list of rules and regulations, Jesus' yoke was about a relationship. Jesus stepped into time and space as a rabbi and said, I have a yoke. This rabbi has a yoke. The burden that I place upon you is that of a relationship and not about rules and regulations. Jesus wasn't against the law. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to say, I'm here to put flesh and blood on the words. I came to show you what it really looks like to live out the scriptures. Jesus also came and said that he had authority. That he had authority. The word shmika. Now for a rabbi to say that he had authority was really a statement of saying, I have come to tell you how passages are really to be interpreted. I am the final authority, the final say in how to read this scripture and then live it out in life. You see how audacious this was? Here he was coming along, saying, I have the answer to the answers. I am the final authority. Now this could happen amongst rabbis. If a, if a rabbi would say, I have authority on this verse or this passage, two other rabbis had to come alongside them and say, we agree. And then that would be set in stone never to be changed. Well, Jesus had two authorities come alongside him to prove his authority. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the day of his baptism, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit of God descended and his Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And symbolically, Jesus had his two extra pieces of backup for his authority. So you have to realize what Jesus was coming and doing. Jesus was saying, I'm the final rabbi. I'm the one with all authority over what these words mean. And I've not come with my list of rules and regulations. I've come to offer you a relationship with the God of the universe. Now let's look at Jesus' disciples. Who were these ones that followed him? 
who were his Talmudin. Well, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, others who think back had maybe at one point in their rabbinic education been sent back home to study their craft. Why? Because they were washouts. They couldn't make it in school. The rabbis had sent them home. That's why it's, we see proof of this in Acts 4 when Peter and John have been talking and preaching. And in verse 13 it says this, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were, what? Unschooled. Ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, these would have been those who didn't continue their education and they learned the family business. In some cases, some theologians believe that these were just young guys. When we see, when James and John are called to be disciples by Jesus, it says that they, he found them with their father. Indicating that maybe they were still too young to leave home. Some of the disciples were probably as young as 13 and 14 and 15 years old. But let me remind you that Jesus took a bunch of boys who didn't make the cut and he changed the world. Because this rabbi is different. This rabbi's yoke is relationship. This rabbi calls us into relationship with him. Let's look at that call for just a couple of minutes. There was the call to the disciples, and this is often called the investigative stage. In John 1, it says this, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour, and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. See, Jesus was going up to these young men, giving them a chance to come in and see and investigate. For the first time in, in some of these men's lives, a rabbi was coming to them and saying, You can be like me. You know, if that was said to you, you'd drop your nets too. See, because the rabbi is saying that he believes that you can do what he does. He thinks you can be like him. 
those who later would be chosen as disciples were very firstly inquirers and seekers. Some of you who are here today as inquirers and seekers into this thing called Christianity. And you are in a very good place because every disciple of Jesus was at first a seeker, an inquirer. And Jesus would say to you, come and see. Come and get close enough. Watch what I do. See who I am. You're in a place where you can discover the authenticity of Jesus. See, these guys had heard the stories. So they sought him out and they spent some time with him. And because he was Jesus, it only took a day. I don't know, wouldn't you like to know what they did on that day? We don't know where it was Jesus was staying and we don't know what they did. But I'll bet it was a humdinger. Because what does Andrew do? Well, first he believes that this is indeed the Messiah. And he ran and he got his brother. Said, let's go, bro. It's time. He's here. That was one awesome day to come and see Jesus. Jesus says to us, come and see. Then second, he says to us, come and follow me. This is the defining stage. This is a direct call of Jesus to be his, uh, to individuals to be his disciples. Rather than the investigative part of being a seeker, Jesus now becomes the instigator of a call to a deeper level of commitment. In John 1, 43, it says this, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, I'm leaving town. I'd love, you to, give, I'd love to give you that come and see piece, but I'm leaving town now. Let's go. An interesting discussion takes place in Luke 9, starting in verse 57. With Jesus and some men. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to the other man, (coughs) he said to the other man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Well, that's harsh, isn't it? What a mean guy. Won't let this guy go back and bury his father. Won't let this other kid go back and say goodbye to his mommy what's Jesus showing us here about what it means to follow him here's what I think he's saying if you're going to be my disciple it is not about your comfort it's not about your comfort 
I couldn't help but sit in that little room two weeks ago in Costa Rica filled with 50 to 60 worshipers and a concrete floor and one light bulb and no ventilation and wonder if it would work here. If we would show up to that kind of place simply because God showed up there or if we'd complain that the seats weren't soft enough and the air wasn't right and there was no place to watch my kids. Jesus says it's not about your comfort. He says it's not about your priorities. Jesus got it. Okay, your dad died. You got to bury him. Somebody else will take care of that. You got to go say goodbye to mom. What's he say? You can't look back or you're not fit for service. It's not about your priorities. It's about Jesus' priorities. It's not about your definition of what following Jesus is. Every week or so, I talk to somebody who basically wants to inform me about their definition of what it means to follow Jesus of what really Christianity is. And strangely enough, it seems to fit all of their junk. That it's their priorities. See, it's not about our definition. It's about Jesus' definition. We want it to be about prosperity. We want it to be about blessings. Jesus has a different definition. Here's what it is about. It's about the kingdom of God. He mentions it twice. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Serve in the kingdom of God. The time has come to realize that when Jesus says to follow him, it is not about our comfort or our priorities, or about our definitions, it is about his kingdom. In order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of this rabbi, it's on his terms and not ours. So Jesus says, come and see. He says, come and follow me. Then he says, come and be with me. This is the calling stage. And in Luke 6, just before, he calls to him 12 men. We read this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. He said to them, come and be with me. This is the moment. Interestingly enough, he used the same phrase that every rabbi would use. Come and be with me. Step into my dust. I don't know what Jesus' prayer exactly was that night. But I don't think it was that he would choose the right ones. I believe his prayer probably was that the 12 that he did choose would become the right ones. 
This rabbi was choosing his inner circle. And he chose ones who would become something. Eleven of them would become what we would assume they would become. Eleven uneducated guys who simply knew Jesus and turned the world upside down. One of them was right because he became a key piece in Jesus giving his life for you. See, as he chose this inner circle, he chose these 12 who he would take places they'd never been. He would allow them to see things they would never have dreamed of seeing. They would watch him as he cast out demons and heal the sick and even raise the dead. They would go to him, with him, to hang out with the most sinful of people. And eventually he'd send them out to do this on their own. So he called them to be with him. But along with the call, there is a cost. There was a cost to being a Talmudin of Jesus, unlike the cost of following any other rabbi. Jesus told us there would be a cost to all those who would follow him throughout history. If there is no cost to what you call your relationship with Jesus, then if I were you, I would question my relationship with Jesus. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus tells his disciples that they'll be hated just as he was hated. In 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says that those who follow Jesus will endure persecution. And in Luke 12, 26 and 27, Jesus himself warns that walking in the rabbi's dust will mean personal sacrifice and even death. Billy Graham said this, salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything we have. Believers all over the world pay this cost each and every day as their faith is questioned, attacked, and declared illegal. But on our side of the world, I believe that every true believer who is seeking to live holy as Jesus was holy pays a cost each day that he or she battles the world system and the flesh and the enemy. You see, it is a battle to walk in the dust of our rabbi. It is a daily choice and a daily commitment to follow Jesus close enough to where it gets messy. Some of us are living in victory and following Jesus and others here today are struggling to even believe that victorious living is possible. See, when you, if you feel like you fail and you just can't do it, it gets discouraging, it gets frustrating, and it's easy to quit and give up. But Jesus said there'd be a cost. He also says that there's a commitment 
There is a call, there is a cost, and there is a commitment. Let's just quickly look at an incident that took place when the disciples were in their training stage. It takes place in Matthew 14, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It says, During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Can you imagine what these disciples thought? We're the Taliban, and, t- Taliban of, the, of, these, of these, this rabbi Jesus, and, now, and we're supposed to do everything he does. Oh, no. He's walking on the water. So somebody comes up with a bright idea. It's a ghost. Good excuse. Not Jesus. Ghost. Don't have to worry about that. <clears throat> Unfortunately... Jesus declares, it is I, don't be afraid, which means time to walk on the water, guys. Peter gets it. Peter says, just call me, Lord, and I'll come. He walks on water. You can get down on Peter, but he's the only one in human history that's done it, hasn't he? See, if you're a disciple, you've committed your entire life to being like your rabbi. If you see your rabbi walking on water, what do you want to do? You want to walk on water. Peter has a little problem, though. First of all, he sees the wind, which is always a problem. No, what Peter's looking at is just the ramifications of the wind. See, we don't see the wind either in our lives. We just see the ramifications and we get all worried. Peter didn't lose faith in Jesus. That wasn't the problem. What he lost faith in was what Jesus could do in him. He lost faith in himself as a disciple. See, Peter made the mistake of saying, I can't do this. And he began to sink. What he forgot was that Jesus could. Jesus could do it. Jesus was doing it. And Jesus was calling those disciples to do it too. You know, Jesus throughout his ministry expressed frustration with his disciples when they lost faith. Not believing that they could do what the rabbi had done. How many of you are here today? You just lost faith that you can, you can do this Christian, Christianity thing. Well, let me just remind you, no, you can't, but Jesus can See, we follow a rabbi and we get his dust all over us and what that is a constant reminder of is that he can do it in us when we stay close enough. When we're covered with his dust. Jesus would say to you this, as he did in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. 
and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Let me remind you this morning, believer, seeker, follower, disciple of Jesus Christ, the rabbi, (coughs) that the rabbi believes that you can be like him. The rabbi has called you. Our rabbi has set a cost before you. And he asks for commitment. He asks you to walk in his dust. Would you bow your heads? So we finish out this morning... I'm going to ask our leaders right now to step out and come to the front. Come and stand here at the altars. Maybe this morning you're struggling to live as a chosen disciple. But it's just gotten hard. And frankly, you're discouraged and fed up. You've forgotten that it's Jesus who does it, not you. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling to pay the daily cost. Maybe you're failing. And the enemy's gotten in and accused you and said, well, you're just a failure. But I'm going to ask that you come and let one of these men or ladies pray with you. Tell them what's going on and this is our Brothers Keeper prayer time today is right now. Jesus is saying, you're my disciple. Live in the truth of that. You can live in victory. Don't get discouraged by failure. Don't get frustrated. Maybe today Jesus is calling you to walk on water. Something way beyond your comfort zone. And today is the day to step out and do it. These folks are going to be here to pray. As the band plays, we're going to take these next few minutes. And these folks are just going to put their hands on you and pray for Holy Spirit empowerment in your life. We need, we need to be disciples who walk in the dust of our rabbi. The world needs to see us covered in dust. Let's step out as his disciples.